It was this weekend 20 years ago that Jane Ellen and I moved into our first house and I became a pastor of a local congregation. We served for eight years at First Baptist Church Owenton in Kentucky. For nearly the next seven years, we faithfully served at First Baptist Church Pleasant Grove on the western side of Birmingham. And just a few weeks ago, we together celebrated our fifth anniversary here at First Baptist Church Pelham as pastor and people. It's been 20 years, three congregations, a load of valuable lessons, innumerable fond memories. As I think back over the last two decades, there seems to be one word that comes to my mind. It's the word grace. For God and God's church has been extremely gracious to me and to my family. I know that I just might run the risk of being nostalgic. But today, if you'll give me permission, I would like to take a stab once again at the very first sermon I ever preached. It was 20 years ago when I asked a congregation to take their Bible and turn to John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. And once they found their place in sacred scripture to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. And here we are two decades later, and I'm going to ask you the very same favor. Will you please take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to John chapter 13, and once you've found your place, stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Today I want to preach in your hearing a sermon that's entitled, Meaningful Ministry. John chapter 13, I'll begin at verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands, my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said that not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. It is John who tells us that it was just about the time for Passover. Uh, Passover was the meal that commemorated the great Exodus event whereby God liberated his children from Egyptian captivity. Every year, the Israelites would converge on the holy city of Jerusalem for a week-long festivity called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It all culminated in the Passover. Jesus and his disciples were faithful Jews, and they had come to Jerusalem to observe Passover. This is not the first time that they had observed and celebrated this meal together. This is about the third occasion, but there was something significant about this trip. For the disciples had already taken note how earlier in the week Jesus had triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem to the thunderous applause of the crowd. With a zeal of nationalism, they proclaimed, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They waved palm branches. They laid cloaks as if they were rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. Some of the religious establishment said to Jesus, You've got to quieten down the crowd. They're getting too loud, too boisterous. And Jesus said, If these people are silent, these rocks will cry out. All week long, Jesus had been teaching and ministering in and around the temple complex. They get towards the end of the week. It is time for Passover. It's the opportunity to eat the meal that commemorates how God dramatically and powerfully liberated his children from captivity. It is John who tells us that it was time for Jesus to leave this world and return to his father. The word that's rendered time could better be translated as hour. In John's gospel, the hour is always synonymous with the hour of redemption. It's the time of salvation. It would always appear that especially in John's gospel, Jesus is always looking with one eye towards the cosmic clock. In John chapter 2, when Jesus goes to a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, it is there that his mother tells him they have run out of wine and Jesus performs his very first major miracle of ministry. But before he does that, he turns to his mother and says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. You fast forward to John chapter 7 and there Jesus is describing his divine identity. And some people in the crowd take exception to the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. And so it is John who tells us that they picked up some rocks hoping to stone Jesus right there on the spot. Oh, but the gospel writer tells us that they could not seize Jesus. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. When you and I come to John chapter 13, the hour has finally come. The time has arrived. This is the moment of salvation. It is the hour of redemption. And Jesus now shows them the full extent of his love. Apparently, love is something that's not just declared, but it's demonstrated. It's something that we don't just think about, but it's something that we do. And now Jesus is about to show them the full extent of his love. 
you might say, that Jesus had one more sermon to preach, one more message to give. And it's on this night that he would give the introduction of his salvific sermon. This sermon, this message, it is not preached in a synagogue, nor on the streets. We do not see Jesus proclaiming this message on the seashore. Instead, Jesus is huddled in an upper room with his 12 disciples. And on this night, Jesus doesn't use very many words. He gives what you may call an object lesson. It's a powerful way to introduce what redemption looks like. It's the hour of salvation. It's the time of salvation. And Jesus now shows them the full extent of his love. When the disciples got into the upper room that night, it looked like business as usual. They were familiar with everything about the room and the table setting and where they were supposed to sit. Not only had these disciples been with Jesus for three years and observed the Passover together for the last uh, three times, but these guys were Jewish men. So since infancy, they had been trained on this story. They had been raised knowing the meaning of this meal. As the disciples entered, they, they took note of how the table was arranged. They saw the roasted lamb, the parsley, the bitter herbs. They saw the stack of unleavened bread. It was right there in the same spot on the table. They saw the pitcher of wine. They noticed that the table was only 18 inches tall because on this night they were supposed to recline at the table. They were not going to eat in haste. This was a meal of leisure. There were large pillows that were arranged all around the table and the disciples knew where they were supposed to sit, recline, with their feet extended behind them. They propped themselves up by their left elbow with their right hand. They reached on the table at the appropriate times and they ate the delicacies of the meal. They could pretty much tell you the script. They knew the narration. They knew the story. They knew when they were supposed to eat this or when they were supposed to eat that, when they were supposed to drink that cup of wine or when they were supposed to take that other cup of wine. Oh, they, they knew everything about the meal. They knew what was supposed to happen. Now, towards the beginning of the meal, it's customary for either a child or a slave to enter the room and wash the hands of those participating in the meal. It was the time for that hand washing. But no child entered the room that night. They waited and no slave came through the door. More than a few of those disciples were thinking to themselves, this seems weird. I mean, Jesus always takes care of all the details. Is this just an administrative oversight? I mean, we will cut him some slack. It does seem to be an interesting week. It seems that he has a lot on his mind these days. Maybe it's just an innocent oversight. Oh, but the moments began to pass and there was awkward silence. Their eyes began to dart back and forth. Nobody really wanted to lock eyes with Jesus because they all thought that Jesus had made a mistake that night. Where's the child? Where's the servant? Who's going to wash our hands? It's at that moment that Jesus pushes himself up from the table. He takes off his outer garment. He wraps a towel around his waist. He goes to the back corner of the room, and there he pours water into a basin. He returns back to the table, and he begins by not washing the hands of his disciples, 
but their dirty, smelly feet. Friend, you could have heard a feather drop to the ground in that moment. Everybody was silent. There was awkward silence, dumbfounded silence. There was a common rabbinical statement that went something like this. Everything that a slave does for his master, a disciple may do for his teacher, except wash his feet. Everything that a slave, servant, can do for his master, a disciple can do for his teacher, except for washing his feet. The relationship that the disciples had with Jesus was a disciple-teacher relationship. And I promise you that at no point over the last three years did any of those disciples, Peter, James, or John, or any of the bunch, none of them thought to themselves, you know what, I think I need to go and wash the feet of Jesus. And I promise you that if they never thought that, I'm emphatic that they never fathomed the reality that Jesus would then wash their feet. This is something that was so remedial. This is something that only a slave would do for his master. I mean, no disciple would ever think about doing this for his teacher. And of course, no teacher would ever do this for his disciples. Yet on this night, Jesus, the Savior, is the servant. On this night, Jesus, the God of the cosmos, is the slave. On this night, it is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl, lived a perfect life, had a three-year ministry, accumulated about 12 friends, poured truth into them. And on this night, in this moment, the one of the last lessons he wants to teach is something about servant leadership. And he, Jesus, gets down on his hands and knees and he washes the dirty feet of his disciples. If you can even begin to fathom the notion that the servant becomes a slave, then once you wrap your minds around that, can you just think with me about the vulgarity and the grossness of the task that Jesus was willing to do? He got down on his hands and knees to to put the dirty feet of his disciples in a basin of water And with the hands, the hands that healed the sick, the the hands that opened the eyes of the blind, with these tender hands, he began to wash the feet of his disciples. The aroma that pulsated from those feet must have taken your breath away. The smell of those redneck toes was a mixture of of dirt and sweat, manure, and wet leather. Keep in mind that these disciples wore sandals, which provided as much support as flip-flops. Remember that they walked the roads that were gravel, and they were stone-covered, and they were dirt, so the feet of the disciples were bruised and callous. Some places may even been bloody. And also remember that these disciples shared the road with livestock, so some of the toe jam is not toe jam. It's a mixture of dirt and manure. And Jesus gets in this mess. Jesus willingly stoops down. And he cleans the feet of his disciples. Don't even allow me to start thinking about or visualizing 
the overgrown, discolored toenails of these rebel-rousing rednecks from Galilee. This was an atrocious sight. It was a, a breathtaking aroma. And Jesus willingly stooped down. And he did something that only a slave would do. And only the slave would do it for his master. And Jesus voluntarily stooped down to clean the feet of his disciples. You can imagine with me now that this is what Peter resists. I don't know at what point uh, Peter is in line. I don't know if he's first. I don't know if he is fifth. I don't know if he's twelfth. But at some point when Jesus gets to Peter, it is Peter, the spokesman of the group. It's the loud mouth of the bunch. He says what everybody else is thinking. Don't you even think about washing my feet. I mean, Jesus, there is no way I'm going to allow you to wash my feet. Are you going to wash my feet? This was a rejection, not just because he had dirty toes, not just because he had stinky feet, but Peter understood that Jesus is the Savior, and he's coming to be a slave? Jesus, you're not my slave. That's what Peter's saying. You're the master. You're the teacher. I'm the disciple. I don't even wash your feet. You are not going to wash my feet. You are not my bondservant. And Jesus said, you don't understand what I'm doing. But later, you'll understand. I must wash your feet. And then a light bulb goes off for Peter, and he thinks to himself, well, if it's good to wash my feet, what about my hands, my head as well? And Jesus says, he who has a bath only needs to have his feet washed. Peter, you're clean, though not every one of you. The reason Jesus said not everyone was clean is because John tells us Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And certainly Judas was around the table that night. It's not until you get to chapter 13, verse 30, that we read that Judas took the bread and then he went out into the night. So Jesus understood who was about to betray him. He knew that Judas was there and he said, not all of you are clean, but Peter, you are clean. And because you are in Christ, because you are a faithful follower, you don't need a new bath. You've already been cleansed just from time to time. You need a good foot washing. Jesus got done. He served and ministered to every person around that table. He then put his outer garment back on. He resumed his proper place at the table. And he said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. That's exactly who I am and what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also have to wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do for others as I have done for you. You'll be blessed if you do them. We finish reading this story and we think to ourselves, is the point that Jesus is making is that you and I need to always carry around a basin and a jar of water and a towel so that everywhere we go we have the opportunity to wash other people's feet I don't know that that's a bad idea but I don't think that's necessarily the takeaway from this passage I don't know very many Christians who physically and literally wash one another's feet now there are some Christians who do that 
usually it's in the context of a worship service. And the numbers of those Christians, it has to be a minority. But I know a lot of Christians who live out the principle of this passage. I think that Jesus is showing us how we are to interact with the world. He is showing us how we are to have meaningful ministry with others. If you want to summarize meaningful ministry, I would encapsulate it in this statement. That meaningful ministry is joyfully demonstrating the sacrificial love of Christ by serving others. Meaningful ministry is joyfully demonstrating the sacrificial love of Christ by serving others. For those of you who are questioning this at home, no, I did not come up with that 20 years ago. It took me a little while in ministry over the last couple of decades for me to determine that that's what meaningful ministry looks like. Meaningful ministry is joyfully demonstrating There is something about ministry that we must do. We must demonstrate. And as we demonstrate this ministry, we do it with joy on our face and in our hearts. Jesus declared, you'll be blessed if you do them. That word blessed, it means happy. It means joyful. We're familiar with the Beatitudes of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We're familiar with the Beatitudes of Jesus, that the life of following Jesus is a blessed life. It's a happy life. It's a joy-filled life. And if you follow Jesus, then you look like Jesus. You walk like Jesus. You talk like Jesus. You do the things that Jesus does. And here Jesus declares that ministry is joyfully demonstrating. There's something that we do. We don't just think about a prayer ministry. We do a prayer ministry. We don't just think about a children's ministry. We actively participate in a children's ministry. We don't just fathom and contemplate student ministry, but we get our hands dirty and we do student ministry. We don't just think about a Sunday school ministry, but we actively participate in a Sunday school ministry. Ministry is something that we do. It's a joyful demonstration. And if we follow Jesus then we do things that Jesus does and we do them the way that he did did what he was doing. So he did it with great joy. I can imagine that as Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, he did not see this as a burden. He didn't see this as a chore. He saw this as a joy. I can still see a twinkle in his eye. I can see a smile that comes across his face, especially in his interaction with the apostle Peter. I can see the smile. I can see the twinkle. Jesus even did this with joy in his heart. Remember, this is the time of salvation. It's the hour of redemption. And even as Jesus went through the cross, he did it with a sense of joy. I'm not saying that he did it with a smile on his face all the time. But there was something about it that had joyful demonstration all, all, all around it. But let me ask you this, my friend. Have there been times and seasons in your life when the joy has been robbed, when the happiness has been stolen? Let me ask it this way. Are there times that you do ministry and it's not out of celebration, but it's obligation? You make that visit, not because you want to, but because you have to. You teach that lesson, not because you're filled with joy, but you're just filled with a sense of, I've got to do this. 
you give your tithes and offerings, and it wouldn't be described as joyful, it would be described as obligatory. You just do it because somebody told you that you needed to. Or maybe you do a ministry for somebody at your office, and all the while you're thinking to yourself, if the roles were reversed, that scallywag would not be doing this for me. Or maybe you help a neighbor uh, move a refrigerator. And the real reason you're helping that neighbor move the refrigerator is because your spouse keeps telling you, you need to go over there and help Johnny as he moves the refrigerator. Or as you move the refrigerator, you think to yourself, I am doing this only because I'm doing a favor for him because one day I'll need for him to do a favor for me. I wonder, any times in your life when the joy is robbed? Any times in your life when the happiness is stolen? And, and you do ministry, you do good things, but you don't do them with joy in your heart. Oh, friend, those seasons, they happen for me. Those days, those times, those occurrences, I'll be honest with you, there are times when I do things out of obligation instead of celebration. But the way that I remedy that is I have to think to myself, how would Jesus do this? On my best days, I think about Jesus. I'm not saying that I always think about Jesus. I'm not saying that he's always on my mind. I, I regret to say that there are times when I am just as selfish as you are. But on my best days, I think to myself, how would Jesus be doing this? What would his demeanor be? What would the attitude of Christ be as he did this, this inhumane task for Jesus even joyfully stooped down to wash the dirty feet of his disciples? Meaningful ministry is joyfully demonstrating the sacrificial love of Christ. Ministry is always tied to Christ at least ministry that has meaning. And Christ is always tethered to sacrificial love. It is John Piper who says, if you look at this story carefully, it will show you that you must go low in order to lift people high. And that's ministry. There's a great deal of love, there's a great deal of humility that's required for you and for me to go low, to do things that, 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 we don't get accolades for, to do things that, that really uh, is not real flashy. It's, it's really just kind of uh, uh, nitty-gritty, to, to go low, to serve people in order to lift them high. Because it's not about you, it's really about the other person. John Piper says this is what Jesus shows us, what real ministry is all about. Jesus goes low in order to lift people high. In John chapter 13, verse 34 Jesus will say to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. For by this, the world will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Right there in that new command, Jesus now told the watching world, you have every right to evaluate whether a person is a real disciple of Christ or a phony disciple of Christ. And the litmus test of whether you're a real disciple is if you love one another. Of course, that word love is agape love. It is God's love. It's unconditional love. It's love with no strings attached. It's, it's doing something for somebody else without any prospect that they're going to return the favor. It is unconditional, untethered, un, 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 unending type of love. This is the love that Jesus has for us. This is the love that we're called to show and demonstrate to other people. Because meaningful ministry is joyfully demonstrating the sacrificial love of Christ. For us to say we're to love each other, 
doesn't mean we're supposed to be a doormat. It also doesn't mean that doctrine doesn't matter. For us to be a congregation that says we love people does not mean that we're a doormat that everybody walks over. It also does not mean that doctrine doesn't matter. No, ethics matter. Teaching matters. We want to be faithful to God in the way we live our life. And so if I love you, I'll tell you the truth. If I really, really love you, I'll tell you the truth. And if you love me, you'll really tell me the truth. Doctrine matters. It's not that we just say we love everybody and it doesn't matter how people live or what people say or how people think or what they do. Yes, it does matter how we live and what we say and what we do and what we think. All of that matters because doctrine matters. But if we love each other, we will tell people the truth of the gospel. We will tell each other the truth that Christ has given to us in his holy scripture. Jesus came to show sacrificial love. Jesus came to be a peacemaker. There is a difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. A peacekeeper will avoid conflict at all costs in the hopes of keeping peace. That's not Jesus. Jesus is a peacemaker. A peacemaker is one who wholeheartedly embraces the conflict so that he can make, craft, create peace. And isn't that exactly what Jesus did? His sacrificial love came into this world so that he could make peace. So we could have peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with one another. I don't think I have to convince you that our world is chaotic. Our world is a mess. There is conflict and chaos in every direction. Between me to God, between me and myself, between me and you. And the only way for me to know peace is to know Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not a peacekeeper. He is a peacemaker. He came to establish peace in this chaos. He came to show us sacrificial love. It's because of that love that Jesus not only washed the feet of his disciples, but then he went on that journey up Calvary's hill. And Jesus was stretched wide for your sins and mine. He was hoisted into the air and he arrived and he was in anguish and pain. He died your death. He died my death. And Jesus eventually declared to Telestai, it is finished. And with that, he gave up his ghost. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him to a borrowed grave. And on the third day, Jesus rose again. And all of this was so that we would have peace with God. All of this was so that we would know the sacrificial love of Christ. Friend, meaningful ministry is joyfully demonstrating the sacrificial love of Christ by serving others. Every time I read this story, I'm amazed at the reality that Jesus washed the feet of not only John, but also Judas. I'm assuming that Jesus washed all 12 disciples. They're 24 feet, they're 120 toes. I'm assuming that all those rednecks had all their feet and all their toes. But Jesus willingly washed the feet of John and washed the feet of Judas. In 20 years of ministry, I have discovered it is infinitely easier to wash the feet of John versus wash the feet of Judas. It is easier to serve a friend versus a foe. It is far easier to serve somebody 
who supports you versus someone who will stab you in the back at a first moment's notice. Now let me be honest with you. In 20 years of ministry, I have served with a lot of Johns. But there have been a few Judases along the way too. And as I look at this story, Jesus ministered to whoever was in front of him. He didn't get a chance to pick and choose. He didn't say, I'm only going to wash John's feet, but I'm not going to wash Judas's feet. No, he washed the feet of John and Judas. He served those that were in front of him. I've already told you that Judas was right there because in verse 30 of this same chapter, it is Judas who takes the bread, then he goes out into the night. In John's gospel, light and darkness, they don't just tell you the time of day, it tells you the condition of the soul. Because Judas was groping in darkness. He was in spiritual darkness. And right up to the very last moment, we find Jesus ministering to him in a meaningful way. And Jesus sets us an example. That we serve the people that are in front of us. We serve the people that we're looking at. We serve our family and our friends. And yes, we serve uh, people that are up and down the street and at the, at the schoolhouse and, and at work and at church. We serve whoever God places along our path because meaningful ministry is joyfully demonstrating the sacrificial love of Christ by serving others. And you and I don't get to determine who the others might be. We just serve. John. And we serve Judas. And I know it is infinitely easier to minister to John versus ministering to Judas. But Jesus calls us to do it. Before we leave the story, I do think there, there's a little twist that we need to address. It's that conversation between Peter and Jesus. Some have just seen it as an interruption. That Peter just interrupted Jesus as he was trying to set an example for all the disciples. I don't think this is an interruption. I think this is a moment of instruction. I think that if it was an interruption, Jesus just simply would have told Peter, pipe down. Just be quiet. You're ruining my point. You're ruining this, this object lesson. But Jesus doesn't do that to Peter. He engages him in conversation as if to say, this is important. Peter initially resisted. You are not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, I, I've got to. Uh, you'll understand it later. Well, then not just my feet, but my hand, my head, my hands and my head as well. And Jesus said to him, he who, who's had a bath only needs to have his feet washed. And you are clean. What's the lesson in this interaction? I think the lesson is this. That before you and I can do ministry for Christ, we must receive ministry from Christ. Before we can do anything of value for the Lord, we've got to receive value from the Lord. If we're going to do anything with his strength, we've got to receive his strength. Ministry for Christ must be preceded by ministry from Christ. 
You and I cannot go out in our own power and do meaningful ministry. We have to have moments. We have to have times on a regular basis when we just get one-on-one with Christ, when we just get one-on-one with the Lord, and we say, Jesus, I need you to wash my feet. I know that I'm clean. I can never lose my salvation. I know that I'm in Christ. But along the journey, I've just attracted some dirt. I've got some manure. I've got some sin that's, that's in, in my life. And I need for you to wash me, to cleanse me, to wash my feet. Jesus is showing Peter and he's showing all of us that ministry for Christ must be preceded by ministry from Christ. I think this is something that John learned well. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the author just simply says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, that word confess is written in present tense, which implies a continuous action. It's not that we uh, get saved on a daily basis, but we continually confess our sins. Because as we walk along life's dirty roads, we attract dirt to our feet in the same way that we attract sin to our soul. And before we go out to do any meaningful ministry with Christ, we need to get along with the Lord and say, please, wash my feet. I confess my disobedience to you. I confess my selfishness to you. And I just need you just to wash my feet. I know it's not a salvific issue, but it's a relationship issue. Because Jesus, I want to be as close to you as I possibly can. So draw me close to that precious bleeding side. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. So bless me now, my Savior, because I come to thee. Maybe there's somebody listening to my voice, and and you're in Christ, but you're in a season right now of COVID-19. You're you're in a season right now when things are different and helter-skelter. And maybe you just need to get along with the Lord this morning. Maybe you just need to ask him, please come and wash my feet. Cleanse me. In 1 John 1, 9, when it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us. It's a word purify us. It's a word that means to wash us. And once again, John's not talking about salvation, but he's talking about an ongoing, continuous relationship that he has with his Lord. And maybe this morning there's somebody listening to my voice, and you're in Christ. But in these moments, you just need to get along with the Lord and say, Lord, please wash my feet. Because I want to do meaningful ministry for you. And I know that you've set me the example. It's joyfully demonstrating the sacrificial love of Christ by serving others. But before I can do any ministry for Christ, I've got to receive ministry from Christ. And I wonder if there's anybody who just needs to confess sin to the Lord right now. I wonder if there's anybody else listening to my voice and you just have to honestly say, I've never trusted Jesus as my Savior in the first place. But through the description of Jesus today, that the great God of the universe stooped down to our level to cleanse us thoroughly from head to toe. And you think to yourself, if that's really who Jesus is, I need Jesus in my life. 
because my life is a wreck. My life is messed up. I am filthy. I am dirty. I've got a foul stench and aroma that pulsates throughout every fiber of my being. Friend, if that's you, today can be the day of your salvation. Now can be the time of redemption. All you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, I confess my sins to you. And I ask for you to come and to wash me clean. And I trust you to be my Savior and Lord. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't know about you, but I, I can see Jesus coming. I can see Jesus coming, and he's got a towel wrapped around his waist. And in his hands, there's a basin of water. And he's bringing that sloshing basin of water in your direction. And he comes and he kneels before you. And he says, friend, let's steal away for a few moments. Let me serve you before you try to go out in your power and serve me. Let's just have a couple of moments together, Jesus says. You confess, I'll forgive. You speak, I'll cleanse. And then you can walk out of here ready to do meaningful ministry so if you've had moments with the Lord you can joyfully demonstrate the sacrificial love of Christ by serving others Heavenly Father we bow before you we give you these moments of response and invitation and oh Father there may be somebody listening to my voice and today is the hour of their salvation. It is the time of redemption in their life. Lord, I pray that you will break through in a meaningful, powerful way. But Lord, I also acknowledge there are many people that are listening and watching. They are in Christ. They're believers in the Lord. But they're in a season that's stuck with dirt and mire. And they need to be cleansed and have their feet set squarely upon a rock the Lord Jesus. So Lord Jesus, come and minister to us before we dare go out and minister in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.